You're listening to Televisionary, the podcast about the shows that shaped us. I'm Elena Hillard. And I'm Cody Hoffman. And in this episode, we take you through the history, key moments, and lasting impact of House of Cards, with a few detours along the way. I have had like a recovered memory of this bird. And that, I will say, was probably the most shocked I have ever been watching a television show. Now you have like Big Bang Theory and Mike and Molly, like things have reached an all-time low. Three, two, one. Hello! Hello. And welcome to Televisionary, the podcast where we discuss the shows that shaped us. We are going to be discussing a show today that I think had a huge impact. However, I think we both struggled a little bit in researching this show more than I thought we would. We are going to be discussing House of Cards today, which was the first Netflix original series. We are, and I think the reason that we struggled with researching it is because this is a show that neither of us particularly enjoyed. (laughs) I enjoyed the earlier seasons, but it definitely lost its luster for me over time, and that made me less eager to learn more about it and to talk about it. But it is a show that has been hugely influential in ways that I don't think are immediately apparent unless you're really thinking about them. So that's more of what we're going to get into than the content side of things, which is normally what we do here anyway. This is not a show where we discuss the events necessarily that happen within television series. We're discussing the important ways that the show has influenced pop culture and the world and the medium of television and whatnot. And House of Cards did that quite a bit. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. I think like looking at other shows we plan to cover, there are really key events that happen in the show that did sort of resonate throughout the culture. However, House of Cards, it's a lot more about the show itself, the platform it was on, and even the personal lives of some of the actors, I would say we'll probably get into. Yeah, it's going to be a little different, but it's going to be fun. I think so, too. So do you want to just jump right into a little bit of the history of the show so we can move on to the more interesting subjects? Let's. Well, one thing we like to do with each show is talk about our relationship to it, I guess. So I have watched all of House of Cards. The last, like, three or four seasons, I kind of did so begrudgingly, just kind of like riding it out because I felt like I'd put so much time into it already that I needed to. But I definitely enjoyed the earlier seasons more, as I said, and trudged through the later seasons, I would say. Yeah, I didn't even finished the last three seasons. I watched the first three. I think the third one was very difficult for me to get through. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. Like one, I just think it's not really my type of show to begin with. Two, the show I think did kind of snowball a little bit in a direction that I didn't really find all that interesting. Like I, the, the show just took some twists and turns that I wasn't ready to ride out. But I have read through the synopsis of the three seasons I didn't watch. Synopses? Synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. And today I watched the last 10 minutes of the finale episode, and it made me even more certain in my decision to not finish the series. (laughs) You remember as I was watching the finale and I checked to see how much time was left on it. And it was about 10 minutes. And I was, I just thought to myself, how in the world is this the end of the series? Like there's 
only 10 minutes left of this and I just felt so underwhelmed and so foolish I guess for <laughs> spending so much time watching it because it was just it did not pay off for me yeah well we're even going beyond the history of the show a little bit I think with these few little tidbits of information so Netflix is the platform on which House of Cards was distributed aired whatever we're saying for streaming shows now and it was founded in 1997 by reed hastings and mark randolph dvd distribution began in 1999 that was after they had an influx of about 30 million from an investor from 99 1999 to 2007 they were doing dvd rentals through the mail i think hopefully most people listening remember that i'm it's possible that there are people listening who don't remember that. And then in 2007, they launched their streaming service, which rapidly grew over the next few years, expanding to like other countries. And now, of course, it's pretty much worldwide to a large degree. And that pretty much brings us to House of Cards, which premiered in 2013, correct? Correct. That was their first original series. They did have a series called Lily Hammer, which I believe aired in a Scandinavian country uh, originally. And then Netflix distributed it on their platform. But House of Cards was really their first totally original series that they produced from start to finish. And it is worth noting that House of Cards was their first original series, but it is not an original property, one might say, because it is an adaptation of a 1990 British trilogy, also entitled House of Cards. I think, well, the first installment of that might be House of Cards, and then the other subsequent chapters are titled different things. They have different titles, yeah. Yeah, but that trilogy itself was based upon a 1989 novel called House of Cards. So this is kind of the third iteration of the House of Cards story, but I feel like it is probably quite different. That was what I thought as well. And I think the, so it launched in Britain as just a four-part miniseries for the actual House of Cards. And then they did two or three subsequent like seasons or whatever. I thought that they were very different and at least the first series in Britain is actually way more similar to the American first season than I had originally thought. They even, I mean, the names are different, but there's like, you know, the Frank Underwood type, there's the journalist, there's all of the parts are kind of there. And it's it's kind of weird, but it, it was more similar. And then I think over the course of the series, it deviates more. But the first seasons are surprisingly more similar than I thought. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I feel like that's not always the case when there are like international versions that, you know, they don't always stick true to that because there's this idea that the American version has to be better. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth remaking it. Yeah. So Netflix set out to establish this original programming behemoth. They set out to transform themselves into a service that could compete truly with the likes of HBO and Showtime and the broadcast networks. So they actually outbid several other platforms for the rights to House of Cards. So they dished out a ton of money for this, and they also guaranteed that the show would have at least two seasons instead of just a pilot or instead of you know a handful of episodes. That, to my knowledge, is the first time that any television distributor handed out that large of an order before they had even seen anything. Yeah, I 
cannot think of a single other show and I I kind of tried to look it was it was hard to find like a clear answer but that was that's pretty unheard of around the time that this show came out like it probably was the first time that ever happened and that was probably because of all of the big names that were kind of attached to it already I mean David Fincher directed some of the episodes in the first season and he had already established himself as like a pretty huge deal in Hollywood. I believe Kevin Spacey was attached to the project pretty early on as well, and he had already garnered a lot of success. So it was a safe bet for Netflix for that reason. And Netflix was actually also able to pull a lot of like viewing statistics from their streaming service that basically let them know that this show would be successful with their audience. And so I guess for them, it it wasn't hard to commit to two seasons. And I think the original model of just doing the pilot, like it was, it would have been harder for a traditional like TV network to guarantee them that much right up front. Yeah, absolutely. I think a move like that, like guaranteeing two seasons is indicative that Netflix is doing something differently than everyone else, which was their intention. You know, that's what they set out to do is to show that we aren't trying to be like everybody else. We are trying to do our own unique thing here, but do it better than what anyone else is doing. And one could argue that they did, at least for a while, and we'll probably get into some of that a little (laughs) bit later on. Yeah. But yeah, bold move on their part, but clearly it paid off. Yeah, definitely. So this is the point in the show where we usually like to discuss some of the actual content of the show and what it meant for the show's impact and, you know, legacy, influence, all of that stuff. As we have already said, we did not particularly enjoy the show that much. (laughs) So while there are things that we can mention here, we're not going to dig as deep into the influence of the content of the show this time because there, there just weren't as many culturally resonant moments or, you know, unique first times you saw something on television, that kind of thing. So we'll just run down through a quick list here just to point out some things that made the show special, I guess, in some way, if if you can even call it that <laughs> special. <laughs> yeah. And I think there are like maybe like two of these moments that are like actually kind of big moments. But yeah, I don't sorry. I don't know why I felt the need to interject there. We're just going to go through them. It's going to be <laughs> it's going to be fun. <laughs> hey. Don't ever apologize for being yourself, Elena. My bumbling self. Okay, let's bumble through these now. (laughs) So the first moment that I wanted to talk about is the quote-unquote murder of Peter Russo by Frank Underwood. Peter Russo played by Corey Stoll, and Frank Underwood, of course, played by Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey was jockeying to become vice president and ultimately president, of course, in that first season. And uh, one of the obstacles in his way, I guess, was Peter Russo, who was a man with a lot of internal demons, a lot of troubles going on in his life. And Frank Underwood totally exploited those and took advantage of that and left him in a running car in a garage to suffer the fate that one in a running car in a garage suffers. That was toward the end of the first season and kind of my first clue that the show was not really holding anything back. This was not going to be the kind of show that was sparing characters just because you thought they were going to be around because you can just kind of expect that, you know, this guy is going to be a foil for Frank throughout 
at least a couple of seasons of the show. And then for Frank to have overcome him so quickly was a little surprising to me. And frankly, a little bit concerning because you don't quite know where the show is going to go after that. It was also my first indication, and maybe maybe I'm silly for viewing this event in this manner, but it was the first indication to me that the show really was more drama than a reflection of our own reality. I think up until that point, like I could kind of suspend my disbelief and believe that like this is how events unfold in Washington. But then this happened and I'm like, no, I don't think politicians are killing each other. I think that this show is is going to be more heavily dramatic and heavily soap opera-esque than I thought originally. And I think that that sentiment kind of continues throughout from this point forward. It absolutely does, because even more shocking than the Peter Russo quote-unquote murder is the actual murder of Zoe Barnes, played by Kate Mara, who is a mainstay of the first season, one of the three central characters, really, of the show, and someone that you expect to be around for the entire series, someone that I personally was rooting for more than either of the other two main characters, Frank or Claire Underwood, and Frank just decides that he is done with her in the first episode of season two and chucks her in front of a moving train. And that, I will say, was probably the most shocked I have ever been watching a television show. I distinctly remember that scene where just out of nowhere, so unexpectedly, Frank just throws her in front of the train and there's a big splat. And I audibly shrieked when it happened because I obviously did not see it coming. But also I was like what did this show just do? This show completely destroyed itself because Zoe was really the only character that I liked. Now, what is the show going to be? I think it was a like really brilliant move to have this happen in the first episode of season two rather than in the finale of season one, which is what happened, I believe, in the British version of the show. And I think it's more shocking that it happened in the beginning of a season, it just feels kind of like unusual that it handled her death that way. But I'm right there with you. I mean, I was not happy that she was gone. I really enjoyed her character. And actually a lot of people that I've talked to about the show echo that same sentiment that they wish that she had stuck around for longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, you said unusual. I think that's a good word for killing off one of your main characters in the first episode of season two, especially because this was one of the, well, the first streaming only original show. And because of that, they released all of the 13 episodes at once and people just binge through the first season, maybe, or, you know, they might've spaced it out. I don't know what people did, but there was such anticipation for season two. And I feel like they they could have gotten a little more mileage out of Zoe. Well, a lot more mileage, honestly. And the fact that they cut her off immediately in the season premiere, it left them kind of like fleshing out parts of season two that were not like as fully developed and not as rewarding for me as a viewer. So I don't know if other shows learned a lesson in that way to kind of pace things a little bit more, but I sort of feel like they didn't because I've seen other shows do similar things in the years since. That's exactly what I was going to say. I feel like a lot of the 
and we're going to touch on this more later, so I'll just briefly say that a lot of the issues that House of Cards had are issues that I still find in original content that Netflix is producing today, almost to a a higher degree now than then. So it's interesting and we can talk about why later. Yeah. So I think the only other thing that I wanted to talk about that uh, from a content standpoint was this device that they had used throughout the show of Frank talking directly to the camera, breaking the fourth wall. And that was something that Claire Underwood, his wife, played by Robin Wright, started to do She did one time, I believe, in season four and said something like, just to be clear, I know that you're there watching, but I don't feel like talking to you or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I don't really remember. And then she just went back to never, you know, talking to the camera again. And then in season five, she does begin talking to the camera. And at the end of season five, the very end of the finale, Claire becomes president after Frank resigns the presidency. And she turns to the camera and says, my turn. And that was, I feel, a significant moment because the show was unwittingly setting themselves up for Claire to become the sole lead of the show in season six after Kevin Spacey was swiftly let go from the show for his sexual assault allegations. And somehow, even though the show was completely reorienting to making Claire the focus without really even intending to do that when they were filming, you know, season five, they somehow bungled it i thought in season six (laughs) and they built up to this for so long and you kind of knew that that was the direction it was going to take and then somehow it didn't end up panning out and that, that just always surprises me when a show puts themselves in the best position possible to kind of do right by their characters and they still can't pull it off i know it's so funny to me that they were in like the best case scenario for what ended up happening with Kevin Spacey. They literally built the show up for him to take a back seat in the final season. And I know I didn't watch all of it, but the critical response that I did read to the final season was mostly lukewarm to negative. And the people I know that did watch it through to the end were not satisfied with the way that the show ended. I'm not really sure how they messed it up so much or why because they should have been in a position to actually make the transition pretty smoothly it's really a shame like i can never remember her name the actress that plays claire robin wright (laughs) robin wright she's so good in the role like she's Mm -hmm. so amazing and they just really they really did her dirty kind of (laughs) (laughs) it's like somehow the show became a different show like in the sixth season there's all of a sudden this cgi bird that's trapped in the walls of the white house and she's like punching a wall to catch it and let it out and i'm like what is going on you know after we last talked about that cgi bird too i think i remember seeing like gifs of it online (laughs) around the time that this came out or something like i have had like a recovered memory of this bird and how ridiculous her punching the wall is uh-huh. Well, anyway, we don't need to spend any more time talking about that. No, not at all. It, it is something that I think other shows since House of Cards concluded its run 
or you know that began after House of Cards started its run. Other shows have certainly taken a similar trajectory, and it seems like those shows tend to be more streaming shows than traditionally released weekly kind of shows. I personally have a couple theories about why this could be, and I think that there is definitely a difference in shows that are intended to be binge-watched versus shows that are still released weekly. I think that weekly shows can get away with spacing out the dramatic events differently. Like, even shows like Killing Eve, which are released weekly but are probably mostly binged, their their pacing is a little different. Maybe Killing Eve is, like, a terrible example for that. But, like, there are these shows that we know people are going to binge-watch, and And I think that you have to keep the viewer engaged in a completely different kind of way. It's less about cliffhangers than it is about twists or dramatic events. Because cliffhangers, when someone's watching seven episodes in a row, the cliffhanger has no payoff because they're just going to immediately start watching the next episode. So you have like these more dramatic events happening or twist events happening to keep the viewer engaged. And like just a quick weird aside about binge watching as well i was reading through the wikipedia page of binge watching which is like a real thing that people study and kevin spacey was like this huge proponent of like binge watching as a way to watch tv he has made all these statements around the time that house of card was released about how this is like give the viewers what they want if they want to indulge in this like they should be able to and like this is the future of tv and i don't know if it's just because like knowing like who he is as sort of a predator the whole thing seemed so creepy to me his language that he used to describe binge watching it really put me off but yeah that's that's my theory i think too with netflix I'm I'm really rambling now, but like Netflix produces and pumps out so much content. They have new original series dropping like daily and they just I feel like they have put themselves in this position where like the only way they think they can get people to engage with their content is if it's shocking in some way. Does any of that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I definitely can agree with a lot of that. I think because there is such a glut of content out there things have to stand out at least to some degree in order to capture people's attention and one of the ways that shows do that a lot of shows do that is to surprise people with throwing them off in the way that house of cards did with you know the the murders of various characters (laughs) along the way and other you know shocking events that happen throughout whatever but i i think to a certain extent now viewers expect that i don't know if people can fully appreciate anymore a a sort of quiet and measured progression through a show over multiple seasons. And that was all that you saw for the most part in television for decades and decades. (laughs) And then just since House of Cards premiered, uh, not just since House of Cards, there were, you know, some shows, especially on premium cable, that got off, for lack of a better term, on surprising their audience. But I think that a lot of viewers just want to be shocked and surprised, but most content creators don't know how to do it in a way that actually feels satisfying and also feels true to the show and true to life, if that's what they're going for. It's sort of a strange, like, I'm just thinking of the most recent Netflix series that I've personally tried to watch and 
I just, I can't even finish them because they're so uh, just... Mediocre? Yeah, like mediocre, like overly dramatic. And like, this is probably not a discussion that we really want to spend a lot of time in, but like the amount of money that Netflix spends to produce their original content, like they're billions of dollars in debt from making Mm -hmm. these shows. And I know like debt at a corporate level is very different from a personal level, but it feels really unsustainable long term because their main way of making money is getting more subscribers but we're reaching a point now where like the streaming field itself is so saturated with providers that i don't really know how netflix believes that they're going to continue to grow their subscriber base i think that covid was actually a very good thing for netflix because they saw a huge growth because people were at home but that's not going to last as we hopefully go back to some sense of normalcy by the end of this year. And then you have even more streaming services coming out this year. So it's going to be really interesting to see how like everything shapes up and what that does to the quality of content. Yeah, I will be honest here and say that I canceled my Netflix subscription last year because I was just not watching enough on it. They hadn't come out with any new originals that I had actually enjoyed since Russian Doll, which I think debuted at the beginning of 2019. Has it been that long or was it 2020? I'm not sure. But anyway, it had been a hot minute, as the kids might say, since I had watched any Netflix originals that I enjoyed or even seen any that I wanted to watch. It's just weird to me how they could... They started out chasing this premium content, and clearly House of Cards has a very distinct look. It has clearly cost a lot of money. It was intended to feel prestige <laughs> It was intended to feel prestigious, and, <laughs> and it does. You know, they pulled off what they were going for with that particular show and with the couple of shows that they came out with right after that. And as they started trying to broaden their offerings for a larger audience and grow that subscriber base, it seems like everything just got diluted to the point where it's all just average, in my opinion. But like, I I just, I don't miss Netflix now. You know, I don't wish that I could watch Bridgerton and Cobra Kai or any of these other shows that I keep hearing about now, because that's just that's not my personal taste level, and I don't think it's the personal taste level of people who originally subscribed to Netflix for House of Cards or Orange is the New Black. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And something you said reminds me of like my favorite quote that I found in researching this from their chief original content officer. He said very early on, around the time that House of Cards came out, that Netflix was trying to become HBO before HBO became Netflix. And so we're basically at this point now where HBO has HBO Max, their own streaming site, which I personally think has lower quality content than what was previously on HBO. Agreed. And Netflix has come to this like mediocre middle level as well. So like what even is HBO anymore? Like where even is the good content? Because it feels like in shifting the field in the way that Netflix did, everything's sort of homogenized almost. I 
I don't know. It feels like, and I feel like that happened with cable too, where cable and network, like I'm talking about cable in the sense of like having a cable package for your TV, but things that were broadcast traditionally, like there used to be really good content there as well. And now you have like Big Bang Theory and Mike and Molly, like things have reached an all time low. (laughs) Whoa, let's not hold back, Elena. So (laughs) shots fired. But I don't know. I mean, I want to pull back for a second and say that, yes, House of Cards was premium content. It did garner a lot of critical acclaim. It did win an Emmy in its first season. And it it was actually the first streaming service to win an Emmy for a major category, right? Right, yeah. Uh, David Fincher won the Emmy for directing in a drama series for the first, for the pilot episode in 2013. And the show won other awards as well. That was its only major Emmy, but it had other creative arts, I mean, wins and was continually nominated. I think Robin Wright was nominated for every season and Spacey was as well up until he got the axe. Robin Wright won a Golden Globe for the first season and was the first person to win a major acting award for a streaming service. And Kevin Spacey won the Golden Globe for season two. And he also won the SAG Award for season two and season three. So, you know, the show did demonstrate that streaming shows were not considered to be of a lower quality at all, at least from a critical and award you know, organization standpoint, which, you know, is significant for the industry because the industry cares so much about those things that if the show had just been kind of rejected in that way, it might not have been seen as a viable alternative to cable or broadcast. Yes, absolutely. I don't know. Where do you want to go from here? So I think it One, this is a big segue, well, not a huge segue from what we were talking about, but just a little point that we wanted to make that I think is worth mentioning that uh, House of Cards did launch or boost the careers of several people that went on to rather illustrious careers in Hollywood as Kevin Spacey's star fell, bears rose. (laughs) Yes. So I'm thinking specifically of Mahershala Ali, who appeared as Remy Danton from the first season of the show and was, I don't remember at what point he was kind of phased out, but he started to be phased out because he became <laughs> too big for the show, maybe, because uh, he yeah. was off winning Oscars for Moonlight and for Green Book. Also thinking of Rachel Brosnahan, who started as a humble hooker, just a small town call girl, yep, making it big in DC. And she parlayed that into a guest spot on another Netflix series, the other original Netflix series of the time, I guess, Orange is the New Black, and then ended up as Mrs. Maisel, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And Elena pointed out to me that she did not even realize that was the same person. No, I I really didn't. She's remarkable, like the transformation from those two characters. Mm -hmm. Sure is. Well-deserved. Yes, good for her. And then also Corey Stoll and Kate Mara, who portrayed Peter Russo and Zoe Barnes, respectively, both had careers before the show, as did Mahershala Ali and Rachel Brosnahan. But the show put them on the platform in a way that they obviously had not been before that point. And especially Corey Stoll and Kate Mara's characters being killed off in a very high profile way, I think kind of did wonders for their careers. They became quite identified with those roles, but I feel like they became better known to the general Hollywood community because there was buzz around the way that their characters were 
disposed of on the show. I think that's fair. Uh, which is not always the case with a show like this. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes getting killed off on a show can overshadow you in a sense, and I don't mm-hmm. think that it did that for them. No, definitely not. Corey Stoll went on to be the lead of the FX show The Strain, which I have not watched, but I thought looked like it might be worth it someday whenever I have nothing else to do. <laughs> I know a lot of people that have watched it really like it, so mm-hmm. maybe someday. Cool. Kate Mara went on to roles in a bunch of different movies. Has she had another regular TV role? She was just in A Teacher on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Um, like where she plays the she plays the Kevin Spacey of teachers, one might say. Yeah, that something about that project really unsettled me. Yeah, I did not have a desire to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, nothing's really sticking out in my mind. Uh, I can pull up her IMDb. Do that. She was in Fantastic Four, which I did not see, but I'm sure was just great. Ugh, they love to do that one every couple of years. <laughs> they do. What are they going to learn? She's been. She was in that movie Megan Levy, where she plays a soldier with a dog. Uh, I think she was in like Chappaquiddick. That's what I was just gonna say. I know she yeah. was in Ch- Chappaquiddick. Mm-hmm. She did six episodes in Pose. That's right. That's what I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. I because I did watch Pose, which is a show that I feel like we will talk about at some point here. I think you're probably right about that. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Kate Mara might come back up again. But she's also an actress, not to say that this is a bad thing, but I don't think she really has to work. I think that she's a good enough actress with enough acclaim, but also comes from a very wealthy family. So I think she picks her projects very strategically or just kind of chooses to do projects that she feels interested in is sort of the vibe I get from her. That's probably true. I mean, I hate to judge people's financial situations based on their family legacy, but I mean, one side of her family owned the New York Giants and one owned the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I feel like there's some money happening there. Anyway, good for her. Still talented. Right. Yes. Taking nothing away from her talent. She has earned the acclaim that she has gotten, and I wish her all the success in the world. And I'm glad that she chooses projects that seem to be meaningful and challenging for her like fantastic four (laughs) yeah exactly do we just want to talk about the elephant in the room yes normally i love elephants elephants are my favorite animal but this is one that i mean no one wants to talk about how kevin spacey is a predator but we have to like there's no getting around it with this show yeah we definitely have to i Oh, I don't even like I don't even know where to start, I guess, <laughs> with the actual accusations of his sexual misconduct. Yeah, we can start with that. Do you have them handy? I mean, I know that Anthony Rapp, mm-hmm. who is also a pretty good actor, love him, but he came out during the beginnings of the Me Too movement to say that he had been sexually propositioned by Kevin Spacey. Now, uh, we probably should look it up, shouldn't we? Yeah, we don't want to get sued for a libel. Well, a slander, I guess. We're not printing anything. Okay, so on October 29th, 2017, Anthony Rapp alleged that Kevin Spacey had made a sexual advance toward him when Rapp was only 14 years old. This 
sort of led to others coming forward. I think there was a total of 15 others who came forward and talked about their own sexual assault, sexual advances, sexual misconduct maybe is the most general word we can use. And one thing that I found out while researching this is that There was actually an incident on the House of Cards set. Not a lot of specifics here, but there was a gesture and a remark made by Kevin Spacey that resulted in him being sent away for retraining to, and like, obviously that didn't remove him from the show or anything. They kind of just glazed over it, gave him more training and allowed the show to continue. And there was also an incident on the filming of The Usual Suspects where production was allegedly shut down for a few days because Kevin Spacey made an advance toward a younger male co-star. The Anthony Rapp allegations happened in 86. Usual Suspects would have been like 94, 95 when it was being filmed. And then House of Cards again in 2013. It was whenever they filmed the first season. So these were allegations that happened over a long period of time and clearly continued to happen. Yeah, it is shocking to me. Maybe it shouldn't be shocking, but it's mind-boggling that things like this continue to be allowed to happen uh, because people are afraid of the power that these Hollywood stars have. And that's, you know, something that obviously Me Too has been great to kind of get rid of these perpetrators, these people that should have been rejected by Hollywood and lost their careers a long time ago. But the fact that he was able to just kind of keep up this behavior for decades is alarming and really unfortunate. And it just puts the stain on all of his work and, you know, especially House of Cards, because that was the project that he got dismissed from when the allegations came out. I just feel bad for the other people involved with this show that now have to bear the burden of that one person who is disgusting for what he did, but who up until that point was just kind of celebrated and, you know, allowed to keep going because he was celebrated. It's so frustrating to me that Hollywood is... I mean, obviously, Los Angeles, huge city, but like, I feel like Hollywood is a small town in a sense, like all of these people work with each other, they know each other. And as an outsider looking in and looking at other people's careers, I I think that you get the sense that if like one kind of powerful person puts anything negative out there about you, it can really harm your career. So if in you know, 1986 or whatever, whatever project he was working on with rap, if someone had said something or done something, or in 1995, Usual Suspects, a lot of powerful people on that set, if any of them had sort of put the word out, you would think that that this could have been contained or Kevin Spacey's career could have been slowed, but like no one did that, I don't. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm speaking totally from an outsider. But the point I'm trying to make is just that there are other people that are complicit when these things happen. And having gone to Penn State when like the Jerry Sandusky scandal happened, and it, it does feel very conflicting when you think about like all of the people in power that knew that this these things were going on and didn't do anything. And it mm-hmm. sucks that Kevin Spacey was allowed to kind of just be a monster, even if he even if he 
didn't do like the worst sexual assault possible on people. He was just sort of like constantly being inappropriate with people for what, at least 25 years and other people just kind of let it happen. So I, I hope that the Me Too movement has changed that. I don't know if it has totally, but I definitely think there's more of an awareness now. Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, this, I don't remember if, like Spacey's allegations came out pretty early in the Me Too movement, if I am remembering that correctly. And so he was one of the first people to lose everything uh, as a result of them. But there were, you know, several others that, you know, followed in his footsteps. And I feel like it did kind of set this precedent for you get outed as this terrible monster, you're going to lose everything. And that precedent needed to be set. And it took too long for it to happen. But, you know, you look at what happened to Bill Cosby and what happened to Harvey Weinstein and Leslie Moonves, all of these people that had such power and such respect and had such success with these, you know, incredible projects for decades. And all of that rightfully is gone in an instant. And it, one thing that I keep thinking of is, can you still appreciate the art that these people created or the projects that these people enabled knowing what was going on behind the scenes. Can you still even enjoy House of Cards? Can you enjoy The Cosby Show? Can you enjoy any movie that Harvey Weinstein produced? Knowing that there was suffering happening to people as a result of the success of that? I think that there, this is almost the perfect show and person to discuss in terms of like separating the art from the artist. I have a I have a lot to say about this. So Kevin Spacey went on to, after his removal from the show, create a series of YouTube videos. I guess they're not really all interconnected, but the first of which was entitled, Let Me Be Frank. And it is him addressing the camera seemingly as his character from House of Cards. And kind of in a roundabout way addressing what had happened to him and his removal from the show and kind of winking and nodding at like, did I do these things? Like, you love to watch me do these things. It's a very strange video. If you haven't seen it, I urge you to go watch it and give it a thumbs down. So one aspect of this is, you know, who does the character even belong to? Who does the show belong to? You know, Kevin Spacey's gone from the show, but he can still make a YouTube video as his character that he's beloved as, and people like it. I think the video has way more positive reviews than negative, like way more thumbs up than thumbs down. So I don't know if you ever really can totally separate a person from the project or an author from the book like this was a huge thing recently with like jk rowling coming out as like really anti-trans and i personally thought about that a lot because like i loved the harry potter books and i still do and so i thought a lot about like can i still love them like should i still love them where is like the ethical line here and i think that i think that you can you can definitely still watch a project that was made by Harvey Weinstein or read the Harry Potter books. But I think that you really are doing yourself a disservice if you don't at least think about it. You know, with Kevin Spacey, for example, playing Frank Underwood, thinking about how he is as an individual outside of the character and how that may have influenced the way that he was able to play a character like Frank. I think you have to at least 
acknowledge that. And I, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with this before we started recording, reading about like different, I, I was a comparative lit major. So like reading about different literary theories and, you know, deconstructionism really tells you that you should and you can think about an author or think about a creator and how that influenced their work. So I don't know. I guess I'm coming down on the side of, yes, you can still enjoy a project with a total monster in it. But I think that you ethically have to at least have the discussion with yourself of like, what does this mean? How does this change my relationship with the project? How does this change my reading of what that project means? It's a really gray area. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it, this is something that I do struggle with because even outside of the world of you know movies or TV, I think of the music of Michael Jackson or R. Kelly. Like, can you listen to their songs? Can you consume their media and not feel some sense of guilt for, you know, paying them money, essentially, <laughs> that the money that enabled them to commit these horrendous acts against people? I do struggle with it because I want to watch The Cosby Show because it's a fantastic show. And if House of Cards was a better show, I would want to still watch it. <laughs> if fortunately, it's easy for me to avoid it now because I didn't really like it that much. I think you can still watch and appreciate the work that someone who got me too'd, if we can use that as a verb, that someone is the lead of or someone was the you know principal backer for, whatever the case might be, as long as you are thinking, as you said, about the ways that that person might have used that platform to target people to do things that are you know disgusting and unsettling i hesitate to say that i would enjoy watching house of cards again not just because i don't enjoy the content of it th that much but just because every time you would see kevin spacey on screen like how can you avoid thinking about it that's just my perspective is you cannot escape that specter that will be hanging over him forever for me that you know that's always going to be lingering on anyone that has been ceremoniously chopped out of hollywood because of their actions i'm not going to be able to fully enjoy what they have done but i can still watch it and appreciate the rest of it i can appreciate the hard work of the writers and the rest of the cast and the production design people and the editors you know there are so many people affected by that stain that that person leaves and it it's kind of not fair to just dismiss the entire body of work because of all of those other people that put a lot of time and effort and energy into it it's just uncomfortable more than anything does that make sense that makes perfect sense i'm sorry that's always what i say in response to you but that, no it totally makes sense. <laughs> because i'm just always worried if i make sense so i ask you <laughs> <laughs> no you definitely make sense and and maybe just to like to kind of wrap up what we've been talking about like the great thing about where we're at with media and social media right now and like the access that the average person has to both viewing and creating content i think that a lot of the people that didn't have a way to create content in the past or people whose voices were not heard either because of powerful men like harvey weinstein or their race gender or sexual orientation like now there is a place for those people to have their voices and stories 
heard by an audience. And as viewers, we have so many more options. It's like what we were talking about in the beginning, like everything's so saturated, like Netflix produces so many series now, but we don't have to rely on watching a show with like a horrible name attached to it. There are other options out there and things are only getting better with time. Well put. Thank you. Yes. We have one more kind of big question that I'm really excited to talk about, actually. Yeah, I think this could get interesting. So one of the things that I noticed about House of Cards is that the show had this kind of weird ability to predict, maybe you could say, what was going to happen in America (laughs) over the next couple of years uh, as it was coming out. There were storylines that were written before the 2016 election and before Donald Trump's assumption of office that were, I guess, a little portentous of what actually ended up happening in America. There were some storylines of Russians trying to interfere with certain things, storylines of contested conventions, which, you know, didn't actually happen, but was certainly talked about at the time of the 2016 election and to a much lesser extent 2020 and then you know everything that was the fiasco of the 2020 election more the aftermath was the fiasco the election itself was free and fair let's not be let's not (laughs) care ourselves about that that's not what i'm trying to say don't censor us yes (laughs) just the reaction by one particular president to the results of the free and fair election that that did not seem out of place on House of Cards. And it brought to mind the phrase life imitating art because there were so many things that happened within the show that seemed like they were just too outrageous to actually happen in real life. And then something very similar ended up happening in real life. And I just, I don't know, that's something that kept coming up for me as I thought more and more about the show. Then we are recording this episode just about a week after the riot at the US Capitol on January 6th, 2021. And having House of Cards on the brain, it made me think this is something that would have been on the show that would have seemed totally outrageous to me, that would have made me hate the show even more because it was just too far-fetched and too crazily you know, dramatic and almost too convenient from a plot perspective to just you know, be representative of chaos. It wasn't something that could actually happen in real life. And then it did happen in real life. And that's alarming. You know, it should be for all of us that that particular attack happened. But it made me think there are, you know, a couple of political shows like Veep, West Wing. I think Amazon had a show called Alpha House when they first started turning out their original content. But these political shows, I wondered to what degree they had a hand in kind of delegitimizing the inner workings of American government to the point where people no longer are surprised by anything that happens and people no longer take it and their actions against the government seriously. I just, I wondered, did the show, did House of Cards or any of the other shows, uh, you know, of a slightly similar satirical or kind of overblown dramatic nature, did they contribute to a degradation of the standards to which the American people hold their government and its leaders? Or did Donald Trump just do that all on his own? See, I I have thought about this from two main viewpoints. So I'm going to try to make this very clear. I think that the first thing that 
you texted me this question and I have been thinking about it ever since. But the first thing where my mind immediately went was to, <laughs> it's gonna sound really silly, but I was thinking about Teen Mom because this is a show that's really been studied that, you know, when Teen Mom came out, you actually saw a drop in teen pregnancy rates across the US. And that's been studied. And there are a lot of experts who believe that the show's existence actually had an effect on teens becoming more safe with sex because they didn't want to end up on a show like Teen Mom. So there are really like tangible ways in which we see TV directly impacting the way that people interact and like the actions people take in real life. So I don't think it's crazy to then make the leap that these types of political shows can really truly impact the way people view the government and the way that people interact with the government, like quite really, <laughs> quite really interact, you know, with like the attack on the Capitol, like people actually legitimately stormed the Capitol. So it's not crazy to me to think that these TV shows may have contributed very, in a very real way to those things. but. Ultimately, I think, and this is my second point, it's less these TV shows like House of Cards and more the 24-hour news cycle that has contributed to this degradation of like our respect for and our view of the government in general. And part of that is Trump. I think the news cycle really has spiraled out of control since he was elected in 2016 and even before that during his run. But the fact that the news is constant and I don't know, it really has desensitized us because it's always there. Fox News, CNN, it doesn't matter. The news is is constantly there. There's a story every two seconds getting like push notified to your phone about Trump. And this like oversaturation of like political news, in my opinion, probably has more directly affected like our relationship with government than these TV shows. Not saying that House of Cards hasn't in some way or, you know, the other ones mentioned, but I think that it's more probably the news. So that's kind of where I came down on it. I know we went from Teen Mom to 24-hour news cycle, but <laughs> that's where my brain was sort of percolating with this. Uh, I don't know. How do, how do you feel? Well, yeah, I will just say I did not expect the detour into Teen Mom, but I, I think you tied it up nicely. And I, I agree with so much of what you said, like you kind of took words out of my mouth for so much of that. As I asked myself this question that I had thought of, I thought, you know, who was watching House of Cards? Was it anyone who was at the Capitol on the 6th? And my conclusion is probably not, because for the most part, those people are so deep inside of their echo chamber of, like you said, you know, the 24-hour news cycle of getting all of their news and their content of any kind from these particular sources that are telling them what they want to hear. Would they be interested in a show like House of Cards? My guess is no. But I think on a larger cultural level, what a show like House of Cards does is, as you said, desensitize us to shocking events like this. You know, I, as I was watching the attack on the Capitol, my mind thought, boy, this is something they would have done on House of Cards. And 
that thought should be alarming to me because it's like that's not something that we want to be promoting in culture is it and not that anyone on house of cards would have said this is something that people should go and do in real life that you know that's absolutely not what i'm saying and i think everyone anyone with a brain knows that that's (laughs) that no one would ever say that when creating a television show like that but it is just jarring when something like that happens in real life and we don't feel like we haven't seen it before you know it or it should be more jarring when it occurs to us that wow i i expected this in a way because of other things that i have seen that i i think is it should make us ask questions about what we're depicting from society and television and you know media of any kind and how healthy is it for us to keep you know putting these things out there that are just designed to go bigger and bigger and be more dramatic and more shocking because eventually when those things do happen in real life there are terrible real deadly consequences i can't help but feeling like this particular attack should it was expected which is really sad because i don't think it would have been as expected if people hadn't been shown this kind of thing not just by house of cards and again as i said no one in house of cards had the express goal of desensitizing us to you know events like this but it it just it feels so wrong to me now as i think about it that there are shows like i thought of the handmaid's tale as well which explicitly talks about an attack on all three branches of government by this militia style very conservative group and that's it's alarming on the show and it's alarming to watch that but if that exact thing happened in real life now would we be that shocked i don't think we would yeah i don't i don't either and that's troubling it makes me scared for the future of our country i really liked what you brought up about the escalation of like events that are portrayed on tv because it i saw this like tiktok that was someone it was like talking like kids on an HBO show. And it's just like someone just like swearing and saying all of this like over the top, like really adult stuff. And it's just like, that's so true. Like you watch Mm. Euphoria and like that could be the reality for high school students in that part of the country. I don't know. I'm not a high school student in like California, but there is this escalation in a lot of TV shows of like what we're seeing. And maybe it even ties back to what I brought up at the very beginning of this episode, which is that in order to keep viewers engaged in a society that can be so numbing, you really do have to keep upping the ante. And like, when are we going to hit the top? Like how, like, are we just going to be hunger games in like two years? I mean, really at a certain point, you're going to hit a level of like, we've, we've already done naked and afraid. Let's now just put two naked people in the woods and see who comes out alive. Like at a certain point, like there's no, no more that you can push the boundaries. At least you would think so. And it's kind of scary to think that like things could continue just to keep people engaged we could just keep upping the ante on what happens on tv shows that is such a good point i think that we don't know what that ceiling is for what we are willing to tolerate on television 
or, you know, in film or whatever the case might be. But I, I think if we do keep raising that bar, it's going to have dangerous consequences and it's going to, it won't be pretty because we've already seen the effects of people paying attention to too much of a particular kind of media. We already know that if these people, if you know, a certain kind of person hears the same thing over and over again, or sees the same thing over and over again, that makes them feel like it's normal, that it's expected, that it's tolerable, then they're more likely to act on those feelings. And that's not healthy for society, and it can be deadly. Yeah, I mean, I not to take us even further off topic, but there's a reason why when like school shootings were being covered so much in the media that you would always see repeat attacks right after the other. It's it's if you put it out there and you show it to people, it's going to affect them to some yeah, degree. Yeah, absolutely. This conversation has Man. strayed far from House of Cards at times. So if you were just tuning into this episode for that, then sorry for our digressions. But I, these are important points, and they do speak to the influence that television has. There's no getting around the fact that television is, well, in my opinion, others may differ. But again, you're wrong. Television is the most influential media we have. It's in every American home, it's in front it of everyone's face whenever they want it to be. And you just, you can find whatever you're looking for on television these days. And if you are looking for very violent shows that provide some sort of justification for the violent feelings that you see inside, you can find that. And if you are the kind of person who is looking for that and, and getting it, then you might be inclined to do something that has terrible violent consequences for other innocent people and that's an unfortunate consequence of television which for the most part is a medium that is a wholesome escape for most people but it should not be lost on us that it it wields a certain amount of power that we should be careful with i think it's safe to say that this episode of televisionary was more interesting than the entire six seasons of House I of absolutely Cards. agree with that sentiment. <laughs> I would listen to this episode of this show for the entire duration of watching House of Cards. Oh my God. I would choose this 40,000 times over. We covered a lot of ground here, but we got into some what I feel were some good discussions. Hopefully, if you are still listening, you felt so too. If you have anything to contribute to this conversation, you can find us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast. Feel free to jump over there and follow us and leave us some of your comments or ideas or just general praise. We are always willing to accept that. Yeah, only praise. Uh, if it's going to be criticism, keep it constructive or just, you know what, don't yeah, even a, include that's it at a, all. A safe bar for us to set if it's, yeah. if it's any kind of negative comment whatsoever don't even bother thanks for listening yes thank you once again i'm cody hoffman and i'm elena hillard and we appreciate you <laughs> yes we do <laughs> bye uh, bye <laughs> thanks for listening to televisionary if you like what you heard share this episode with a friend you can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye!